Today is February 21st, 2010, and we're looking at a new covenant versus a replaced covenant. Is it a new covenant or a replaced covenant? And the subtitle is Consequences of Misunderstanding, Hebrews 8. Let's begin with prayer. May it be your will, Hashem our God, that a mishap not come about through us, and may we not stumble in a matter of law and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us. And may we not say regarding something which is Tameh that it is Tahor, and not regarding something which is Tahor that it is Tameh. And may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law and we rejoice over them. For Hashem grants wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 5 through 8. Then Hashem your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And Hashem your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And Hashem your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of Hashem and do all His commandments which I command you today. Deuteronomy 30, 5-8. The discussion of uh, the New Covenant I think most theologians would agree that this, uh, at least the first part of Deuteronomy 30, uh, verse 5, is a reflection or a, uh, a foreshadowing of the New Covenant as it will be coming and as it will be proclaimed as the New Covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it speaks of God circumcising your heart. This is uh, reminiscent of, uh, of Ezekiel chapter 36 and chapter 37 as well. It's important to note, though, here at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of this passage, uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 8, where it says, And you will again obey the voice of Hashem and do all His commandments, which I command you today. Replacement, you see, by any other name, is still replacement. There are those who repudiate replacement theology and yet still hold on to the concept that the New Covenant is a replacement for what they call the Sinai Covenant. This view creates a theological monstrosity. Even dispensationalists who repudiate replacement theology still lean heavily upon this concept. And sadly, even some so-called messianics fall prey to the same trap. And it is because they are dependent, usually because they are dependent upon a dispensational view of scripture that causes them to fall into this replacement theology trap. Although certainly dispensationalists we would not put in the category of supersessionists or those adhering to replacement theology. What we would recognize though is that they are using some of the same hermeneutics, the same uh, way of reading scripture that replacement theologians do. And of course it is those same people have a, that are dependent uh, upon Romans, or excuse me, upon Hebrews chapter 8 to make their point regarding replacement theology. Uh, it is Hebrews chapter 8, uh, however, but not as the way that it should be studied, but rather with a selective reading, a reading that fails to dig beyond the surface level of the English, fails to take into account the historical context 
of the epistle to the Hebrews that fails to account for the body uh, of the discussion in the epistle to the Hebrews and simply picks and chooses pulling verses out of context. These replacement readers, whether they are replacement uh, theology or whether they are dispensationalists, these replacement readers see the book of Hebrews as teaching that Moses is the old, Jesus is the new. The Aaronic priesthood is the old, the order of Melchizedek is the new. The temple or the tabernacle is the old. Heaven, or depending on how they uh, couch it, they may say our hearts, is the new. Sacrifices are the old. Jesus at the cross and his sacrifice is the new. Commandments are the old. Forgiveness is the new. The law is old. Grace is new. There's, real, there's a lot of problems with this kind of thinking. Uh, it, uh, as we say, it, it, it creates a theological monstrosity, monstrosity, a law of unintended consequences. Once you start down a path, you have to create uh, additional paths in order to support your uh, your uh, line of thinking. You have to, uh, and it is those support those supports to that line of thinking that are easy to bring down. How much better if we read the book from beginning to end, the whole Bible, not with a uh, not with a platitude that we're whole Bible readers, but we understand that it's the same message from beginning to end. But the biggest problem with this line of thinking, this replacement line of thinking, is that it's the opposite of what Hebrews is actually teaching. Uh, the book of Hebrews uses Calvachomer, which is an, a rabbinic interpretive method. Yeshua uses it uh, extensively in his teaching. It is uh, what's called light to heavy. Kalvachomer means light to heavy. It's something that, uh, uh, if something is true in the light instance, it will be even more true in the heavy instance. It's uh, characterized usually by the phrase, how much more. Using Kalvachomer makes it extremely important for the readers of the epistle to the Hebrews to be able to tell when the, when the writer is, use, is using uh, is using uh, the language for comparison or for contrasting. Uh, it is vitally important. The replacement reader sees everything as a contrast, and that's to the reader's detriment. For example, Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 quotes, or prayer paraphrases, because it's not an exact quote, uh, uh, using at least some of the Septuagint quote, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Uh, where it talks about um, the, a, uh, what, what he sees as the uh, introduction uh, to the New Covenant. Now, we would see the introduction to the New Covenant actually before this, but uh, it's, at least it's first named here in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. And uh, in, in Hebrews, it quotes by saying, or paraphrases by saying, uh, Behold, the days are coming, this is verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 8, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that he took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel and after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to the unrighteous and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. No more. That's concluding at verse 12. The replacement reader sees this and uh, essentially uh, takes this as a replacement that the, the new covenant has now replaced the 
Old Covenant, or what they call the Old Covenant, because actually the word covenant is not found, except in the quoting of Jeremiah, is not found in, the, in Hebrews chapter 8. It's, uh, it's uh, most King James, New American Standard, New King James will have uh, the word covenant in italics. So what they will see is they, say, they would say the old, and by the way, the word old there is not found either. <laughs> the old covenant is not found in the book of, uh, anywhere listed in the book of Hebrews. The phrase old covenant is not found. Let's remember the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah the prophet. In light of Deuteronomy 12, 32 through 32, 12, 32 through 13, 6, which says that if any prophet comes and has signs, uh, but leads you away from the commandments of God, that he is to be stoned and considered a false prophet, could Jeremiah possibly be prophesying about the replacement for the Torah, those very commandments that God says that are eternal? If so, then the Torah itself here in Deuteronomy 12 and 13 says that the prophecy would be invalid. No, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews is not saying that. He is using Jeremiah to show the first covenant as an explanation and an evaluation or evaluation for the new covenant. In other words, how much more? Not replacement. The all or nothing argument that antinomians use is a straw man here. Except for a screw scriptures out of context, that straw man is unsustainable. The all or nothing. And that is, if you don't keep all the law, all the time, then you're under a curse. Uh, it is a straw man, because uh, here in the book of Hebrews itself, we see that um, in Hebrews chapter 11, those faithful there receiving their award, even though we know that they were not sinless according to the commandments of the Torah, and yet they are still known by their faithfulness to the commandments of Hashem. And also, uh, those who make such arguments, obviously, um, they, they argue, although they argue correctly for what they call moral laws, do not lie, do not murder, do not commit adultery, of course, the scriptures do not call them the moral laws, but rather that they are part of the commandments of God. Uh, for them, they would argue correctly for those, but they would teach the abolishment of others. So for them, it really isn't all or nothing. Uh, and we recognize that Hashem rewards obedience. Any obedience receives a reward. Scripture is clear on this point. And selective obedience is really what the antinomian is teaching. To correctly understand the concept uh, of the first and the new uh, being described in Hebrews chapter 8, it is absolutely necessary to understand the imagery that's being used in Hebrews chapter 9. That is the tabernacle metaphor. It's used to point to the relationship between the visible and the invisible because the discussion which begins in chapter 8 continues in chapter 10 and all of the discussion is indeed about the new covenant and that Yeshua is the mediator of the new covenant and that the writer is trying to teach us what first and second, what old and what new are supposed to mean to us in this dialogue. He's trying to... to give us the, uh, the, the glossary for the words first and second, old and new. Go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2, and I'll give you an illustration here. Hebrews 9, 2 says, okay, start in verse 1, Then indeed, even the first, and the word covenant here is in italic, so it's not in the, it's not in the, uh, in the Greek text. In this indeed, even the first covenant, had ordinances of divine, of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. 
for tabernacle was prepared. The first. And uh, in my uh, New King James, it says the first part, which is actually a very good translation. In which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And the, behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the, sins of the, pe- for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, the way into the holiest of holies was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. Now, uh, in verse 9, finish up with verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifice are offered, present tense, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect with regard to the conscience. Uh, what, we, what we get from this is, this, uh, the misreading of Hebrews chapter 9 is, of course, that the first tabernacle, that is, or the temple in the, in the, in the mind of the replacement reader, the first is refer, referring to the first tabernacle. They see the old covenants done away with, just like the temple was destroyed in 70 CE, and that's wrong. Obviously here, and the New King James does a better job of translating the word protos, is being used, or first, is being used to correlate the relationship between the first covenant and the new covenant. The metaphor uses the parts of the tabernacle to make this case. Imagine the, imagine the worshiper approaching the tabernacle or the temple. The first part, the first part that he comes to is on the outside. It's visible. It, it involves those things that he is able to participate and through the Levitical priest, through the Aaronic priesthood, participate in daily. First, he could himself bring an offering to the outside and then on the inside, in the holy place, the the daily worship was being brought uh, there uh, at the table of showbread, uh, at the the, uh, altar of incense, uh, the menorah were there and where the uh, priests were ministering daily. So we see that, that the first part is evidenced is evidence of what is visible. It's visible to the worshiper. Whereas the second part, that which is not visible, that which is reserved only for Yom Kippur, where the high priest would go in once a year, that was invisible. That was the part that is not uh, yet visible. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is giving this, this picture of what is invisible versus what is visible. The first part of the tabernacle represents what's visible. The second part, deuteros, is what is invisible. It's not referring to a separate second tabernacle or a heaven or a new covenant. It's talking about the second part of the invisible. The most important part of this picture is I want you to understand the tabernacle, the two parts, the first part and the second part, are not separable. They are the single, uh, they are part of a single entity. They are not, they are parts, but they are part of a single entity. Both the visible and the invisible part of the tabernacle represent one unit. Both the visible and the invisible comprise reality. They're not exclusive of each other. The inside, the invisible, does not replace the outside, the visible. 
but rather the invisible is enclosed within the visible. Now, this is a key point in discussing Hebrews 8 through 10, because the tabernacle is being used in a homiletic way as a metaphor to understand the reality of what's seen and what is unseen, and to, and to and it's important then to take that same concept in understanding the relationship between the first, or what the replacement reader calls the old covenant, and the new covenant. Overlooked. I, I have to. I have to. I have to go to this. Overlooked by those who, who claim that the new replaces the old. Uh, they read Hebrews eight thirteen. The new replaces the old. We don't have to have the old anymore because we have the new. Uh, it overlooked, of course, is Hebrews eight. I'd like you to go to Hebrews 8.4 and read what it says. Hebrews 8.4. And actually start up in verse, uh, verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one, and speaking of Messiah Yeshua, also have something to offer. For if he, speaking of Messiah Yeshua, were on earth... He would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. This is a, this is a verse that remarkably is absent from so many people's Bible, because they are unaware of it. The idea that the eternal priesthood of Aaron, the eternal priesthood of Aaron, given by God to Aaron and his descendants in Exodus, the eternal priesthood, where he says this is a eternal, uh, this is an eternal uh, commandment, an inheritance given throughout your generations for Aaron and his descendants. The eternal priesthood of Aaron has been replaced by a new priesthood, that is the priesthood of Melchizedek, uh, or that is pertaining to Messiah. Now, the writer of Hebrews. It's not making the point of the replacement, but rather, if you recognize the visible priesthood, and it uses the present tense in Hebrews 8.4, the visible priesthood, the priests that are currently serving in the temple, that the worshipers, the followers of Messiah could actually see, those visible priests, if they're able to minister in the temple, how much more will he be able to minister in an invisible temple that is in the heavens, speaking of Yeshua. But if he were on earth, remember, he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not from the, a descendant of Aaron. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. So clearly we have this problem. The replacement theologian has this problem. How do you deal with the fact that if Yeshua were here on earth, he would not be a priest? This, the dispensationalist has a problem because we're not talking about dispensations when we say that. We're talking about a change of venue, not a change of time, a change of place. While Yeshua is in the heavenlies, he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek. And he does serve. And he has served. But if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. There is no replacement here. There's just the difference between, or rather the comparison between what's visible and what's invisible. What's invisible in this case, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Messiah Yeshua, is superior. Not because it is eternal, because both are eternal. 
it is superior because it is without flaw. The priest himself has no sin. It's without flaw. This is so important you understand in the book of Hebrews. The idea of kavakoma, that there is a light to heavy. If what you see on earth is true, how much more what you don't see is true? Understand that kavakoma, for it to actually work, requires us to accept the first position, the light part. If we don't, then the entire thing breaks down. Which is why the replacement theologian has undermined his very argument. He has undermined the very office of Yeshua as high priest by replacing the Aaronic priesthood, which is, the scriptures are clear, the Aaronic priesthood has not been replaced. The answer, of course, why uh, Hebrews 8.4 is missing from the Bible, apparently, of so many people, is because it doesn't fit into their antinomian theological model. For them, it's all about selective obedience. Just as we talked about people who, who claim the all or nothing. Listen, if you don't keep all the law, you're under a curse. Well, our response would be, exactly what part of the law are you not keeping? Because you're selectively keeping some. They fail to recognize that do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder, are part of the law. They're part of the Torah. They're eternal. Praise God that they are eternal. We laud them for obedience to those commandments. We simply ask the question, why are you selective? Which commandments are you having a difficulty keeping? God says that his commandments are not too difficult. In, Hebrews, in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, quoted in Romans chapter 10, he says they're not too difficult. In 1 John chapter 5, they're not too difficult. So why don't you keep them? The answer that we would give to the antinomian, the answer is, of course, because they're Jewish, right? The real reason you don't keep them is because you don't want to look or act Jewish. We would respond, of course, by saying that the commandments of God are His. They are not given, uh, they are not within the context of uh, a genetic inheritance. They're within the context of a faithful inheritance. Those who would receive them must keep them because they love Him. But you know, a big problem with the uh, the replacement reader of Hebrews chapter 8. A big problem is that they see the word covenant uh, in the quote from Jeremiah 31 and they assume the law, namas, the Torah, is the covenant. And it's not. The Torah is not a covenant. The Torah is the stipulations of a covenant or covenants. Because there is not just one covenant in the Torah. There are many covenants within the Torah. There is a covenant given at Sinai. Oh, wait. There's two covenants given at Sinai. There's a covenant from Deuteronomy that's given on the plains of Moab. Is that the same covenant as the covenant at Sinai? No, wait. The two covenants at Sinai? Which covenant is the old 
covenant, we would ask. Go to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. Here's a perfect example of uh, the word namas, not meaning Torah, not meaning law. Hebrews 7, I'll start at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, that's the word namas, we would say that is the word Torah, what further, was need, what, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to Melchizedek, speaking of Yeshua, and not being called according to the order of Aaron? In verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of law. For Verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. The point that the, that the writer of, of the book of Hebrews is making here is not that the Melchizedek priesthood, the order of Melchizedek, Yeshua's high priesthood, replaces Aaron's, or that there was a change of law of consequence, but rather, out of necessity, we need to recognize there has to be a rule that permits there to be a priest outside Aaron's line. And the only way that that rule can apply is very important, because this is what he's saying, a change in venue. He says it in Hebrews chapter 8, 4. If he were here, he would not be a priest. So what this saying is it's using the word namas, here in verse 12, not for Torah, but rather a change in, a change in principle or a change in rule. In other words, there's another guiding principle at work here. And that is that the Aaronic priesthood, as given eternally in the book of Exodus, applies to earth. It applies to what's seen, not to what's not seen, not to the heavenlies, a different venue. That's the point. So, here the word namas, law, doesn't mean Torah, doesn't mean the law of Moses, but rather it's speaking of a principle or a rule. Another example, go to Romans chapter 3 verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We would say that, yes, that is, that is absolutely speaking of, uh, at least the second use of that is absolutely speaking of the, the Torah. So, you have to be careful when you work, come across the word law in the, in the apostolic scriptures. It doesn't always refer, refer to Torah, although it most often does. But look at uh, Romans chapter 7. All the way through Romans chapter 7, it seems to switch back and forth between law and principle. Is there a Torah of sin? Well, that's what he says in Romans 7, a law of sin. Uh, but then he talks about the law, uh, the law of righteousness, and that it's good and that it's spiritual. Is he speaking about the Torah? Yes. So here we see the switch, the use of namas being used for two different and actually opposing things. Context is very important. Go to James chapter 4.11. James 4.11, I'll read uh, 11 and 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who, does, who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy who are you to judge another? Here, this is speaking of the Torah. We can tell by context. It talks about a lawgiver. It speaks about the law, the Torah, 
in good terms, not bad terms. We need to be very careful how we read the word law, namas, in the apostolic scriptures. Uh, go to chapter uh, uh, 5 of Matthew. Chapter 5, verse 17. I'll read verse 17 through 19. This is Yeshua speaking himself. Do not think I, can't, think I came to destroy the law. That's the word Torah, because he uses the word prophets afterwards. The law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law, that's Torah, till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, further evidence, this is speaking of the law, the Torah, and teaches men, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches, does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17-19. This is use of the word law, namas in Greek, referring to the word or as we would translate it, Torah, the Hebrew word uh, for the commandments of God. Second Peter five or Second Peter three, excuse me. Second Peter three, verse fifteen, three, fifteen through seventeen. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his, his epistles, speaking. In them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Here Peter's telling us that if you can't handle the Tanakh correct, correctly, if you handle it incorrectly, you'll handle Paul's writings incorrectly also. Paul is not coming teaching something new. Paul is teaching us further uh, explanation of what has already been revealed. Peter's making the case that it's hard to understand Paul. It's funny, most of the replacement readers have no difficulty at all understanding Paul and continue to tell us everything that he said to discount uh, what we say uh, to their error. The important point here is no later passage trumps an earlier one, ever. All must conform. God doesn't change his mind. His word is eternal. An, an example is found in Second in Timothy, in this, this uh, powerful passage where Paul uh, writes to Timothy, his disciple, all scripture is given, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What's the purpose for scripture? It's given by inspiration and it's profitable. All scripture is profitable. Not profitable for stories. It's all profitable that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That the man of God may accept it for instruction in righteousness. Question for you. How exactly does the Leviticus 11, which describes food, uh, or rather eating meat, which is clean, versus what isn't food, that is eating meat, which is unclean. How does the majority of Christianity receive instruction in righteousness in Leviticus 11? 
Well, most, the replacement, the replacement reader included, would say, well, you know, we don't want to offend people, so I may not do it in front of their face, but all in all, it doesn't really matter. And in fact, that doesn't apply to me any longer. I can eat whatever I want. Um, and indeed, you can eat whatever you want, but you will not be within the, within the will of God in so doing. The first commandment ever given to man, which we disobeyed, was, Of all the fruit of the trees you may eat, but of this tree you may not eat. So, God indeed cares much about what we eat. Um, and it is the first commandment we heard and the first commandment we broke. It's uh, certainly no different today as, uh, as the average uh, person who, who uh, claims to be a disciple of Messiah Yeshua doesn't even regard his own practice, his own teaching with regard to how he would eat. They don't eat like him. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3. This is the key to uh, the, the antinomian, the, uh, the replacement reader's view that the new covenant's replaced, the old covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 says, and I'm going to read from the New King James first, and that he says, a new covenant. I have, to, I have to point out here that the word covenant is not found in the Greek. But let me start again. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's the New King James. The King James does a little bit better. Listen to the, new, the King James. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which is decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. That's a little better. A little even better yet is the complete Jewish Bible. Not quite where it needs to be, but uh, certainly much better. Hebrews 8.13, By using the term new, he has made the first covenant old. And something being made old, something in the process of aging, is on its way to vanish, vanishing altogether. This word old is an important part of this uh, passage. It's used twice. It is palao. It is speaking, palao is speaking of uh, something being uh, subject to decay or subject to the elements. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 5. In the Septuagint, <coughs> excuse me, this word is used in the Septuagint to describe something. Deuteronomy 29, verse 5 says, And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out. That is the word palaayo'o. Your clothes have not worn out on you. And your sandals have, again the word is repeated, not worn out on your feet. So the word old, being used in Hebrews 8.13, is the word to describe something that wears out. That it's temporal. Go to Psalm chapter 102, verse 25 through 26. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. He's speaking of, of Hashem. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works, the work of your hand. They will perish. What will perish? Pause for a moment. What will perish? The heavens and the earth. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old. That is that word, palat yo'o. 
They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. We know from Hebrews, uh, excuse me, from Revelation chapter, chapter 22, a new heaven and a new earth. We know from Isaiah 66, a new heaven and a new earth. We know that they grow old. There is the temporal and there is the eternal. Go to Isaiah 51, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old. That is, in the Septuagint, in the Greek, palatio, the earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Remember, the Torah is not a covenant. The Torah is not a covenant. The Torah is the stipulations. The Torah is the revealed righteousness of God. So his righteousness won't be abolished. What will be abolished? That which is temporal. That which is temporal will be abolished. Not be abolished. That which is temporal will wear out. It'll grow old. The word palatio is not saying that the first covenant has been abolished, as the New King James says. It's saying that it was made temporal. It was made temporal. And because of that, Here's the, here's the key. This is the biggest pro- one of the biggest problems with Hebrews is that our English translators have repeatedly, chapter 8 alone, 11 times, they change the tenses of the verbs in English. The words in chapter 8, verse 13 are in the present tense, the perfect tense that he made the first, old, palatio, that's, pres- that's, that's uh, perfect tense, but has becoming palatio present tense and is growing palatio ready to vanish away present tense what he's saying is it hasn't happened already it hasn't happened yet in other words it hasn't yet been made old it hasn't yet vanished to our detractors those who are read replacement theology the replacement reader of Hebrews 8.3 we need to remind you that when the book of Hebrews was written it was a number of years after Yeshua Messiah our master was crucified and rose again and ascended a number of years later and wait the first had not yet been made old had not yet vanished. It was part of a decaying system. What's decaying in the first covenant? Let's examine. What decays in the first covenant? Who was it given to? Was it given to a people who were eternal? Well, certainly their spirits are eternal. But did they die? In fact, the people that received this covenant, some died very soon after that with the sin of the golden calf. Most certainly, the rest of them died within the next 38 and a half years in the wilderness, except for those who were over the age of 20. What wore out? The people wore out. 
The people are temporal. So the covenant is made with the people that are temporal. But who else made this covenant? An eternal God. An eternal God. The first is not obsolete. The first is not annulled. The first is not abolished. The first is temporal. It's hidden. The, it, it hides, rather it encases, it holds that which is hidden. Because that which is hidden is the new covenant to, revealed, to be revealed in the future. Galatians 3.15 Galatians 3.15 tells us that the covenants of God do not annul one another. Just the thought of that is beyond reckoning. How can the eternal God, who says, trust me when I say thus, how could he possibly overturn what he says and still expect us to trust him? Galatians 3.15 says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. If it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. What Paul's saying in Galatians here, in chapter 3, is, look, even among men, you don't simply throw it out except by agreement. Prior agreement. Prior agreement. Nowhere in the scripture does God say that he's going to overturn. In fact, he does the opposite. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 8. He's going to cause us to keep his commandments. The stipulations of the first covenant are still in effect. Even though the first covenant is temporal, it's fading. It's in the process of fading. And it's temporal because we're human beings. We decay. In the world to come, we will not die. In the world to come, we may not eat the things that we eat here. It's decaying because it's temporal. It has not been abolished. The, the first covenant has not been abolished. Let's look at the new covenant now. Because it's very important, it's very important that we understand the context that the writer of the epistle of the Hebrews is using in Hebrews chapter uh, 8, verse 8 through 11, where he quotes Je- Jeremiah 31. So let's go back and let's read what he's quoting, but let's read it in the Hebrew text. Let's read it in Jeremiah 31. We'll start up in verse 23, and we'll read through verse 37. Jeremiah 31, 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, They shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and its cities, when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself, and in all its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have, set, I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. After, I woke, after this I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. Verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them and build and to, to build and to plant, says the Lord. 
In those days they shall no more say, the, father have eaten, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, this is important, this is where we're talking about the new covenant. The first usage of the word is found here. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Stop right there. Who is the new covenant with? It says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. My Bible doesn't say the house of Presbyter nor the house of Baptist. My Bible doesn't say the assemblies of God. My Bible doesn't say I will make a new covenant with Christians. My Bible says, and I know your Bible says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Our replacement readers need to understand you can't simply replace Israel with the church. Because what do you do about Judah? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. The two parts that split after King David will become one with one king. Let's continue in verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their, with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Pause for again. After what days? When will this take place? Keep that in mind as we read this. When will this take place? Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, that is the word Torah, I will put my Torah in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. They all shall know me. For the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. For thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for day, light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. But thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. The replacement theologian, the replacement reader of Hebrews 8, hasn't spent a whole lot of time reading the prophets. Because here, the promise of the new covenant it's not a promise given to anyone except the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And the last I checked, not every single one, from the least to the greatest, knows the Lord. Not every single one teaches his neighbor. And not everyone has had his Torah in their minds and on their hearts. Beloved, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37 is not yet fulfilled. God has not brought the new covenant to his people yet. We might say that he has 
initiated, that he has begun. And when we read Hebrews chapter 11, we would say that he had always begun to bring people into the new covenant. But it would be wrong for us to say that this is now established. That this is now established. And as some who read Yeshua's word, this is my new covenant. This is my blood in the new covenant. As somehow establishing the new covenant. That's dispensational theology. And it doesn't square with Jeremiah 31. Nothing in that moment changed except that he reminded those who heard in that moment and those of us that read about it that the new covenant is inaugurated but it is more importantly enacted by Yeshua's work. He's the one that makes it possible for the Torah to be written on man's heart. But as important, he is the one that makes it possible that Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah will be united one nation in the land. That's the key. And that's what he was saying on that Passover when he raised his cup and said that that was a representation of his blood in the new covenant. Not that a new dispensation began. That is a teaching that is not found and has no support within scripture. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36 and I'll continue to prove this point. Ezekiel 36 verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations after, wherever they went. This is speaking of after God had removed Israel from the land, we see that he removed them first in the, uh, in the uh, uh, 6th century before the common era, and they returned to the land after Babylonian captivity, after being gone for 70 years. That he removed them again, in, some of them in, in, in 73 of the common era, but that he finally removed them in 35 of the, 135 of the common era after the Bar Kokhba re- re- revolt, and uh, Rome scattered Jews around the world. So, this is speaking of that time. But I, can, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. Pause for a moment. How had they profaned his name? Was it by keeping the commandments? Is that how he, they profaned his name? Let's see how he describes how they profaned his name. And the opposite of that, how they sanctify. Listen, verse 23. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Stop for a moment. Idols? What idols? Beloved, do you understand the greater number of, of Jews, people who are born, genetically Jews, are not obedient to the commandments of God. And they are idolaters. Continue verse 26. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. 
Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you will need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Remember the curses for disobedience in Deuteronomy? The curses were famine, being scattered to the nations. What's he describing here? The blessings of obedience. Verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Beloved, they were not cast out of land for rejecting Messiah. They were cast out of land for disobedience to the commandments of God. They would be drawn back not for their obedience. They would be drawn back because of his faithfulness to the fathers as described in Romans chapter 11. They'll be drawn back They'll be placed in the land. He'll sprinkle them in clean water. He will put his spirit upon them. He will take out their heart of flesh, their heart of stone, and give them a heart of flesh. He will cause them to walk in his statutes. That's what Jeremiah 31 says. That's what Deuteronomy 30 says. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 37 now. This is a continuation of the same, the same uh, passage. Jeremiah 37 verses 12 through 27. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold my people. Pause for a moment. Who are his people? Jeremiah 31 told us. Ezekiel 36 told us. Israel, the house of Israel, and the house of Judah. Continuing. Behold my people. I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves. O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place, in your, place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write in it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write in it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for, for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. Pause there. The end of verse 17. What do we see in Jeremiah chapter 31? The house of Israel and the house of Judah joined, became one. And then he would give them a new covenant. This is speaking of the new covenant. The new covenant is evidenced by the joining together of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Israel united under one king. That is evidence of the new covenant. It's not talking about united under the Holy Roman Catholic Church. It's not talking about united under some ecumenical head of Christianity. It's talking about being united. The house of Israel. The house of Judah. That's it. New covenant. House of Israel. House of Judah. Only. Continue verse 18. Chapter 37. Ezekiel 37 verse 18. And when the children of your people speak to you saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these, speaking about the sticks and the two being joined into one, say to them, verse 19, say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, I will join 
them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand, and the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before your eyes. Then you shall say to them, verse 21, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them shall be king over them, and no longer shall they be two nations, no lo- nor shall they be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Pause. Verse 26. Covenant of peace. This is the new covenant. This whole passage is a description of what is given in Jeremiah 31, Deuteronomy 30, and Jeremiah 36, or excuse me, and Ezekiel 36 of the new covenant. This is what Yeshua was speaking of when he raised his cup and declared that it was a sign of the new covenant. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace, verse 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Go back to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy that we read at the beginning, verses 5 through 8. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you today. You see that the promise of the new covenant is right here within the Torah itself. It's repeated by the prophets, Jeremiah 31. Repeated by the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36 of verse 37. Yeshua raises his cup in Matthew 26 and says that it represents the blood of the new covenant. But beloved, the new covenant is not yet fulfilled. We have not seen all these things. They're promised. And it's, it's been promised. It's a fact. It may be a fact for you that he's written his Torah on your heart. But all Israel has not yet received this promise. And until they do, this prophecy has not been fulfilled. The replacement theologian, because he wants to undo the commandments of God, because he is opposed to the law, because he is opposed to the commandments of God, at least the commandments that make him look too Jewish, or what he thinks makes him look too Jewish, will not see this. 
chooses to think the new covenant is for him and for others who spit upon the commandments of God, who declare them to be too hard and too difficult, even though he himself has said they're not, who declare them to be simply a trick to fool the Israelites, to show them that they were unable to obey him. What kind of God, for 1,500 years, would allow people to continue to die in sin simply to make the point that you can't do it? No, beloved. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that it is righteousness for us if we do what he commands us. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, it's our life. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it's our life to obey him. Yeshua said in John chapter 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We know what sin is. First John defines sin. Sin is not keeping the law. And we know what love is. We know that love is defined as keeping his commandments, as it says in 1 John. Let's consider the compare and contrast now of what Hebrews 8 is doing. The first and the new, the first covenant and the new covenant have the same God and the same people. This is so important you understand. The people have not been replaced. The old people would have been the Israelites. The new people would be the church. The, no, beloved, the people have not been replaced. It's the same people. The old, as they call it, is not has not been done away with. The first, rather, and the new have the same God, the same people. The first and the new have the same standard of righteousness. We've seen it again in all three passages, actually all four passages, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and Ezekiel 37, a reference to the commandments, the statutes, the judgments of God, and that they would walk in them, that they would keep them, obey them. So it's the same standard of righteousness. The first and the new are similar, but there are expanded promises regarding the land. Notice the first were promises the land, the second expands it. The new covenant expands the land promises. The first and the new have a perfect king to reign over us. The first versus the new. This is where they're different. What's different about the New Covenant? He says in Jeremiah 31, Not like the covenant that I made when I brought your fa uh, fathers out of Egypt. What's different? Here's what's different. A different place to write those statutes, those commandments. Not on stone, but as Jeremiah 31 says, on your heart. Does that mean you won't keep them? That's absurd. <laughs> it's absurd to say, well, it's been written on my heart, now I don't need to do it. That's just silly. It defeats the point. Now, there's written on our heart because we love it. First verse is a new. What's different? It's a different effect. Before we were not able to obey. Why we were not able to obey? Part of the reason why the first covenant is temporal. Because we're human beings prone to sin. What's the difference? Jeremiah 31 says, 
that we will obey him. Ezekiel 36 says that we'll keep his commandments. Ezekiel 37 says that we'll keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 30 says, and we'll keep his commandments. What's the difference? Perfect obedience. What's the difference between the first and the old and the first and the new? His sanctuary will, sanctuary will be in our midst forever, as it says in, in Ezekiel 37. There is a difference between the, the first and the new covenant. There is a big difference. The new covenant is better. How is it better? It's better in that way. It's better because His commandments will be written on our hearts. It's better because we'll be perfectly obedient. It's better because we will dwell with Him and His sanctuary will be on our midst forever. That's the difference between the first covenant and the new covenant. It's not because the old covenant was made on poor promises. But rather it's because it was made with temporal people. And what's temporal? It's growing old. We're growing old. One day will this earth, the heavens and the earth will wear out. And the thirst will be subsumed into the new. Like a sock. Inside and out. When one side's out, you can't see the other side. It's invisible. But turn it inside out. And now you can see the inside, but no longer see the outside. The first does not replace the new. It's, the new does not replace the first, but rather is, a, is the invisible of the same thing. The new covenant is better. The first is visible now. But one day the new covenant will be like the hidden holy of holies. And it will be manifested and we will see what we now cannot see. The new covenant is inside the first covenant. It does not replace it. Let's close with prayer. We thank you, O Hashem our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall. And you have not established our portion with idlers. For we arise early and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah and they rise early for idle words. We toil and they toil. We toil and receive reward. They toil and do not receive reward. We run and they run. We run to the life of the world to come and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, and you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for us, we will trust in you. Shalom.